Chapter Twenty Seven of the Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven: The Solving of the Riddle. For the sake of le bon Dieu, man, cease your cruel mockery," said Brellier suddenly in a husky voice. As the clerk rose to quell the interrupted flow of oratory, and the court banged his mace for quiet, you didn't think of the cruel mockery of God's good world, which you were helping so successfully to ruin," continued the detective, speaking to the court but at Brellier, each word pointed as a barb. Each pause more pregnant with scorn than the spoken words had been. You didn't think of that, did you? Oh no, you gave no thought to the ruined home and the weeping wife, the broken-hearted mother and the fatherless child. That was outside your reckoning altogether. And if hearsay be true, and in this case I believe it is. You even went so far as to kill a defenceless woman who had been brave enough to wander out across that particular part of the fens, just to see what those flames really were. And yet, your lordship, this man howls for mercy. He paused a moment and passed a hand wearily over his forehead. The telling of the tale was not easy. And the expression of Toinette Brellier's tear-misted eyes added to the difficulty of it, but he knew he must spare no detail. In fairness to the man who stood in the dock, in fairness to the law he served and in whose service he had unravelled this riddle, which at first had seemed so inexplicable. Then the judge spoke. The court must congratulate you, Mister Cleek," he said in his fine metallic voice, "upon the very excellent and intricate work you have done on this case. Believe me, the law appreciates it, and I, as one of its humble exponents, must add my admiration to the rest. Permit me, however, to ask one or two questions. In the first place, before we proceed further with the case, I should like you to give me any explanation that you can relative to the matter of what the prisoner here has told us with regard to the story of the frozen flame. This gentleman has said that the story goes that whenever a new victim had been claimed by the flames, that he completely vanishes. And that another flame appears in amongst its fellows. The prisoner has declared this to be true. In fact, has actually sworn upon oath that he has seen this thing with his own eyes the night that Dacre Wynne was killed. I confess that upon hearing this, I had my strong suspicions of his veracity. Can you explain it any clearer? Cleek smiled a trifle whimsically. Then he nodded. "I can. 
Shortly after I made my discovery of the secret passage that led out upon the fens, the entrance to it, by the way, was marked by a patch of charred grass about the size of a small round table. You remember, Dollops, I asked you if you noticed anything then, that lifted up if one had keen enough eyes to discover it, and revealed the trapdoor beneath. Dollops and I set out on another tour of investigation. We were determined to take a sporting chance on being winged by the watchful guards, and have a look round behind those flames for ourselves. We did this. It happened that we slipped the guard unobserved, having knowledge, you see, of at least part of the whole diabolical scheme, and getting within range of the flames without discovery, or, for that matter, seeing anyone about, we got down on our hands and knees and dug into the earth with our penknives. "'What suggested this plan to you?' Cleek smiled and shrugged his shoulders. "'Why, I had a theory, you see. "'And, like you, I wanted to find out "'if Merriton were telling the truth "'about that other light he had seen or not. "'This was the only way. "'Marsh gas was there in plenty, "'though there is no heat from the tiny flames, as you know.' from which fact, no doubt, our friend Brellier derived the very theatrical name for them. But the light of which Merriton spoke, I took to be something bigger than that. And I had noticed, too, that here and there among the flames danced brilliant patches that seemed, well, more than natural. So our penknives did the trick. Dollops was digging when something suddenly exploded and shot up into our faces with a volume of gassy smoke. We sprang back, throwing our arms up to shield our eyes, and after the fumes had subsided, returned to our task. The penknife had struck a bladder filled with gas, which sunk into the ground, produced the larger lights one of which Sir Nigel had seen upon the night that Wynne disappeared. Even more clever, isn't it? I wonder whose idea it originally was. He spun round slowly upon his heel and faced the line of seated witnesses. His eyes once more travelled over the group, face to face, eye to eye, until he paused suddenly and pointed at Borkin's chalk-white countenance. "'That's the man who probably did the job,' he said casually. "'Brellier's right-hand man, that, with a brain that might have been used for other and better things.' The judge leaned forward upon his folded elbows, pointing his pen in Borkin's direction. "'Then you say this man is part and parcel of the scheme, Mr. Cleek?' he queried. "'I do. And a very big part, too. But let me qualify that statement by saying that if it hadn't been for Borkin's desire for revenge upon the man he served, this whole ghastly affair would probably never have been revealed. Wynne would have vanished in the ordinary way.' as Collins vanished afterward, 
and the superstitious horror would have gone on until there was not one person left in the village of Fetchworth who would have dared to venture an investigation of the flames. Then the work at the factory would have continued with a possibly curtailed payroll. No need for high-handed pirates armed with revolvers then. That was the end the arch-fiend was working for. The end that never came. Hmm. And may I ask how you discovered all this before going into the case of Borkins? Put in the judge. Cleek bowed. Certainly, he returned. That is the legal right. But I can vouch for my evidence, my lord. I received it, you see, at first hand. This man, Borkins, engaged both the lad Dollops and myself as new hands for the factory. We therefore had every opportunity of looking into the matter personally. God a mercy! I never did! ejaculated Borkins at this juncture, his face the colour of newly baked bread. You're a liar! That's what you are! A drawing an innocent man into the beastly affair. I never engaged the likes of you. Didn't you? Cleek laughed soundlessly. Look here. Remember the man Bill Jones and his little pal Sammy Robinson from Jamaica? He writhed his features for a moment, slipped his hand into his pocket, and producing the black moustache that had been Dollop's envy and admiration, stuck it upon his upper lip, pulled out a check cap from the other pocket, drew that upon his head, and peered at Borkins under the peak of it. What oh, matey? he remarked in a harsh, cockney voice. Merciful heavens! gasped out that worthy, covering his eyes with his hands, one more incredulous witness of Cleek's greatest gift. Bill Jones it is! God, are you a devil? No, just an ordinary man, my dear friend. But you remember now, eh? Well, that does away with the need of the moustache, then. The clerk of the court, only too familiar with Cleek's disregard of legal formality, frowned at this violation of dignity, and raised his mace to rap for order, and possibly to reprimand Cleek for his theatrical conduct. But at that moment the detective pulled off the cap and moustache, as though well pleased with his performance. Cleek turned once more to the judge. "'My lord,' he said serenely, "'you have seen the man Bill Jones, "'and the impersonator of Sammy Robinson is there.' "'He pointed to Dollops. "'Well, this man Borkins, or Piggott, "'as he calls himself when doing his private work, "'engaged Dollops and me in place of two hands in the factory "'who had been given to too much tongue-wagging.' and in consequence had met with prompt punishment. God only knows what it was. We worked there for something just under a fortnight. Dollops, with his usual knack for making friends in the right direction, chummed up to one of the men whom I have already named, Jim Dobbs. 
He finally asked him to come and help with the loading up of the boats, and gave him the chance of making a little overtime by simply keeping his mouth shut as to what went on. I managed to get on the job too, and we did it three times in that fortnight, and a jolly difficult task we found it, I don't mind saying, but I felt that evidence was necessary. And while in the employ of the master, we carried on many investigations. And still in his service, I made this rough map of the varied turnings of the secret passage and the places to which they led. You can get a better idea of the ground if you glance at it. He handed it up to the high desk and paused a moment as the judge surveyed it through his spectacles. The passage at Meryton Towers and also at Withersby Hall, so conveniently placed near that particular part of the fens, and therefore chosen by Brellier for his work, are both of ancient origin, dating back, I should say, to the time of the Civil War. Whose idea it was to connect the two passages up, I could not say, or when Borkins got into the pay of Brellier and played false to a family that he had served for twenty years. But the fact remains, the two passages are linked up, and then continued at great labour in another direction to that field which lies off the Saltfleet Road and just at the back of the factory. And thus was made a convenient little subway for the carrying on of nefarious transactions of the kind which we have discovered. And how did you discover that Brellier was the master in question? put in the judge at this juncture. He happened to come to the factory one day while we were at work upon our machines. Someone said, Crikey, here's the master. Funny for him to be prowling round at this hour of the day. Night's more to his liking. I could hardly contain myself when I saw who it was, even though I had already discovered the passage to Withersby Hall. I had not yet realised that Jonathan Brent and Brellier were one and the same, though I discovered that the former had a perfectly legitimate office in London, in Leadenhall Street. But when I saw him, I knew. After that, I wasted no time. Since then, we've been having a pretty scramble to get safely away without giving any clues to the other men, and to put Scotland Yard upon their track. They're down there now, and have got every man of them, I dare swear, and I hope they are keeping my friend Black Whiskers for me to deal with. That is the cause of my lateness at the hearing of the case. You can fully understand how impossible it was to be here any earlier. The judge nodded. Your statement against this man, Borkins, is as strong a one as ever was made, said Cleek. It was Borkins who, in a fit of malicious rage, no doubt, conceived the idea of interfering with his master's work to the extent of inventing the means to have Sir Nigel Merriton wrongly convicted of the murder of Dacre Wynne. You have seen the revolver, the peculiar make of which caused it to be the chief evidence in this gruesome tragedy. Here is the genuine one. He drew the little thing from his pocket, and reaching up, 
placed it in the judge's outstretched hand. That gentleman gave a gasp as he laid eyes upon it. "'Identical with this one which belongs to the prisoner,' he said, almost excitedly. "'Exactly. The same colonial French make, you see. This particular one belongs, by the way, to Miss Brellier.' "'Miss Brellier!' Something like a thrill ran through the crowded courtroom. In the silence that followed you could have heard a pin-drop. "'That is correct. She will tell you that she always kept it in an unused drawer in her secretaire, locked away with some papers. She had not looked at it for months until the other day, when she happened to examine one of those papers, and therefore went to the drawer and unlocked it.' The revolver lying there drew her attention. Knowing that it was the same as the one owned by her fiancé, Sir Nigel Merriton, and figuring so largely in this case, she took it out and idly examined it. One of the bullets was missing. This rather aroused her curiosity, and when I questioned her afterward about it, when the inquest was over, and she had brought it forward and shown it to the coroner, who, quite naturally, after the explanation given by Mr. Brellier, gave it back to her as having no dealings with the case, she told me that she could not absolutely recollect her uncle telling her that he had killed the dog with it. A small thing, but rather important." "'And you say that this man Borkins arranged this revolver "'so as to point to the prisoner's guilt, Mr. Cleek?' asked the judge. "'I say that the man Dacre Wynne was actually killed "'with that identical revolver which you hold in your hand, my lord, "'and the construction I put upon it is this. "'Borkins hated his master.' "'but the long story of that does not concern us here. "'And upon the night of the quarrel he was listening at the door, "'and hearing how things were shaping themselves, "'began, as he himself has told you in his evidence, "'to think that there would soon be trouble between Sir Nigel and Mr. Wynne "'if things went on as they had been going.' Therefore, when he was told that Mr. Wynne had gone out across the fens in a drunken rage to investigate the meaning of the frozen flames, the idea entered Borkin's mind. He knew his master's revolver, had seen it slipped under his pillow more often than not of an evening when Sir Nigel went to bed. Here Borkins saw his life's opportunity of getting even— he knew, too, of Miss Brellier's revolver. Must have known, else why should this particular instrument be used upon this particular night, in place of the usual type of revolver which Brellier's guards carried, and by which poor Collins undoubtedly met his death? So we will take it that he knew of this little instrument here, and upon hearing of Wynne's proposed investigations, he dashed to the back kitchen of the towers, which was rarely used by the other servants, as being, so one of them told me, so dark and damp that it fair gave him the creeps. Therefore Borkins had his way unmolested, 
and it did not take him long, knowing the turnings of the underground passage, as he did from constant use, to communicate with Withersby Hall. To which guard he told his tale I do not know, but since we have taken the whole crowd we'll find out later. Anyway, he must have told someone else of his desire for private vengeance. And the thing worked. When poor Wynne met his death, it was at the point of a pistol which had lain unused in the secretaire at Withersby Hall for some little time. I have not been able to find the actual spot where the body of Wynne, and later on that of Collins, was first concealed, but I have no doubt that they were brought from that spot to be discovered by us. It was very necessary for the body of Wynne to be discovered, since the bullet in his brain was fired from Miss Prellier's revolver. It was all part of the plot against Sir Nigel. How bitter was that plot is evidenced by the removal of the bodies to the place they were discovered on the fens. No very pleasant job for any man. Cleek whirled suddenly upon Borkins, who stood with bent head and pallid face, biting his lips and twisting his hands together, while Cleek's voice broke the perfect silence of the court. But thus taken by surprise, he lifted his head and his mouth opened. The judge raised his hand. "'Is this true, my man?' he demanded. Borkin's face went an ugly purplish-red. For a moment it looked as though he were going to have an apoplectic fit. "'Yes, damn you all, yes,' he replied venomously. "'That's how I did it. Though God alone knows how he come to find it out. But the game's up now, and it's no more use a lying. Never a truer word spoken, returned Cleek with a little triumphant smile. I must admit, your lordship, that upon that one point I was a little shaky. Borkins has irrefutably proved that my theory was correct. I must say I am indebted to him. Again the little smile looped up one corner of his face. And I have but just a little bit more of the tale to tell, and then I must leave the rest of it in your infinitely more capable hands. The reason why I mistrusted the story of the revolver? Why, upon examination, that instrument belonging to Miss Prellier was a little too clean and well-oiled to have been out of use for a matter of five months or so. The worthy user of it had cleaned and polished it up so as to be sure of its action, and re-oiled it. So the dog's story was exploded almost at its birth. The rest was easy to follow up and knowing the position of things between Borkins and his master, from both sides, so to speak, I began to put two and two together. Borkins has this moment most agreeably told me that my answer to the sum is correct. But things worked in well for him, I must say. That Sir Nigel should actually fire a shot upon that very night 
was a stroke of pure luck for the servant who hated him, and it made his chance of fabricating the whole plot against Sir Nigel a good deal easier. Whether he would have stolen the revolver had that shot at the frozen flames for which Sir Nigel has been so sorely tried never been fired, I cannot say, but that doubtless would have been the course he would have taken. Luck favoured him upon that dreadful night, but now that luck has changed. His own action has been his undoing. If he had not given vent to this feeling of hatred that he cherished in his heart for a master who was of such different stuff of which he himself was made, the whole infernal plot might never have been revealed. And yet, who can tell? My lord and gentlemen of the jury, the tale is told. Justice has been done an innocent man, and the rest of its doing lies in your capable hands. I ask your permission to be seated. His voice trailed off into silence, and across the court a murmur arose, like the hum of some giant airplane growing gradually nearer and nearer. A sort of strangled sob came from the back of Cleek's chair, and he turned his head to smile into Toinette's wet eyes. In their depths gratitude and sorrow were inexplicably mingled. His hand went out to her. She ran toward him from her place, and in spite of judge and jury, in spite of the order of the law, knelt down there at his side, and pressed her warm lips against his hand. End of chapter 27